Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Meditation is like life. You don't get a manual for how to live your life. You know, there are certain rules you can think about, certain guidelines are going to be helpful, but at different times, different things are going to, you're going to, are going to need to apply. You're going to have to switch up your strategy. So generally in a practice, you can learn the basics of how to do a technique. You can be intelligent about how you're practicing. You can learn a little bit about like, uh, or either by working with a teacher or figuring it out on your own or in community about how to take advantage of certain openings. But even having said that, there will be times when you may need to switch up your practice and you may need to check in with a different teacher or with a different uh, try a new strategy and unfortunately there is no manual that can tell you exactly when to do those things i'm srini rao and this is the unmistakable creative podcast where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements built thriving businesses written best-selling books and created insanely interesting art for more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Jeff, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you here. So, you know, I actually uh, came across your story because I know that you recently co-wrote a book called uh, Medita- Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics with uh, Dan Harris. And I remember when I got a copy of the book and had a chance to read it, uh, I was very intrigued by the story and, and, you know, how it all came to be. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact has that ended up having on uh, where you've ended up with your career and your life? <laughs> what a wicked question. Uh, well, I moved around a lot in my in, in high school. I was at a, a private school when I was younger, and then my dad with, with just with just dudes, and my dad lost his job, so that didn't last. Um, but when I was at that school, I was sort of with the nerds, basically. Uh, I my my only friend there was this sort of uh, gay artist, <laughs> and my and my other friend was uh, I think I had two friends was um, also super artistic, and they were kind of outcasts. And I and my job at the school was I kind of just befriended every new person who arrived at the school. I was sort of a super friendly kind of like a golden retriever, uh, but mostly it was the nerd tribe. Uh, and then when I left, I went to a public school. Uh, this is in Toronto, in Canada, and then I fell in with the ne'er do well party animals uh that was when i was about 16 and that was my group from then on in uh sort of the uh kind of partier skater types um and then when i got to university kind of stayed in that group but of course i also started getting interested in the subjects i was studying and so there was some nerdery happening there as well but Mm -hmm. i think that's uh, but to be honest i have not thought about my 
high school social groups in a long time. So I hope that was an accurate answer. Well, it's interesting. I'm curious how you go from, you know, partying and, and skater, you know, friends to, uh, you know, becoming somebody who studies meditation and, and is, you know, really big into meditation uh, and ends up meeting somebody like Dan Harris. So walk me through how you get from college to where you're at today. Yeah. Um, well, it, you know, it's interesting with the benefit of hindsight, you can start to see the patterns. Um, and I had when I was uh, young, I had a, I had a lot of kind of mystical type experiences, I guess you could say. Uh, like I was into lucid dreaming. I would have these lucid dreams or I would wake up in dreams and I was very interested in how that worked. And I would do these things where I would uh, kind of just try to understand how my mind was working as a kid. Like I'd have these uh, sit on the and try to picture infinity and try to figure out all this ridiculous stuff but you're a kid you don't know any different and I'd have these sort of experiences so that kind of set some groundwork and then when I was a partier I was really into psychedelics like a lot of people so I would have these uh, I would take these LSD trips and all the rest of it Um, but it really started from uh, as a consequence of an accident from partying Uh, that was when I was in Montreal I was about 20 years old I think it was 20 or 19 and um, I was high on mushrooms and it was the night before my exams and uh, my friends and I were just playing football on the street and not doing the work we should be doing and I was my usual dysregulated self climbing I was climbing up storefronts and climbing up walls and I finally climbed to this huge tree and it was sort of freezing rain at the time it was in uh, late spring early spring in uh, Montreal it was cold and I guess I slipped or the branch broke and I fell I fell like 35 30, 35 feet broke my neck in two places hit a parked car um, had a head injury uh, but main one was uh, uh, fractured C6, C7 so I ended up in the I was unconscious, ended up in the hospital and, um, you know, they put me in uh, traction and that was just being all doped up on Demerol for weeks actually. And they kept trying to stretch out my neck so it would be back into alignment. Uh, and I was just really out of it that whole time. Well, you know, my friends came and visited me. I kind of thought it was hilarious too. Uh, ended up having a surgery where they put cow bone in and all that stuff. And then they let me go in, in a halo at a big halo. And you're supposed to take it easy, but I was, uh, I didn't take it easy. I just was, I decided I was determined not to learn any lessons from that. So I just kept on my ways and it didn't end up working. So I had to have another surgery. But the main, uh, where it got interesting is, um, when I tried to go back to school, I, my whole style of working, of thinking kind of had changed and it was like, it went it's almost like it went back to how it was when I was younger. When I was, I was way more ADD when I was younger and very hyperactive. And then it seemed like maybe I was starting to grow out of the ADD a bit. But I don't know what you know. I don't know what happened. But anyway, it was the head injury. The head injury. You get this thing called shearing, where you're you when you have a big head injury, it's like the gray matter and the white matter are different densities, and they kind of shear. And you know, they, they some tear happens or something. But all I know is I was really I couldn't work the same way I used to. I couldn't think in the same kind of linear way. I ha- it was I was more ADD than ever. Uh, it, so basically, it made my ADD worse, and I had to come up with a whole bunch of new techniques for how to get work done. You know, like how to get my essays done. And I mean, I was never a very um, you know, uh, a responsible student anyway, but at least I would get my work done eventually. But I couldn't 
you know, I couldn't write the same way. I had to come up with a whole color coding system of notes to figure out uh, which. So I would just go on various tangents and I'd color the, the color code the notes and I'd find what the through line were between the tangents. And um, and all that got me really interested in consciousness. Like what is going on with my mind? Why is this? Has it changed? So I started reading up uh, was when I started reading about the brain and the mind. I was big into Oliver Sacks back then. This is in the you know, mid nineties now, early nineties. Um, and so I just kept reading and trying to learn. I finally got through school and then just sort of went on adventures in my twenties. Uh, but always reading up about started to read spiritual books then. Cause I figured maybe there's perspectives there. Um, and, uh, eventually I ended up writing a book called the head trip. That was all about, all the different states of consciousness that we go through over 24 hours. So what the, you know, it was sort of like, what, what are these, what are these states of consciousness? What do they tell us about who we are? Uh, how do they change through day and night? How can we start to think about slow way sleep in a way that is, you know, how can we extract the wisdom of slow way sleep, which it has uh, for our lives? How can we extract the wisdom of REM sleep? What is lucid dreaming? What is hypnotic trance? What is the daydream? What does it mean to be alert? Like I just basically created a taxonomy of different states of consciousness and wrote a book about the science of what was going on there and, and but also about the experience what was the experience on the inside and all that time i was still very dysregulated you know my add was pretty much pretty out of control i was just bop, bopping around from city to uh, job to between partners i i wasn't um you know i had a lot of fun adventures but there wasn't that depth of uh being able to feel like i could really connect to my life to you know people in my life and when i was researching head trip that's when i started meditating i i figured okay look i gotta actually try some of these practices i didn't, I didn't want to just read the science i wanted to get the first person experience so i went on my first retreat i think it was 2004 um and yeah from there it it, it was one of those moments, you know, where you, you think you're going to be the worst meditator of all time. And indeed, I was. <laughs> I'm not actually a very good meditator on the, on the concentration side. Um, and uh, and of course, there's just all this. You start to see all your stuff, all your worry patterns going around and around. But even on that first retreat, I remember, you know, you look around the room. I don't know if you've done much meditation, but it's kind of moving when you, you look around and you just see well, all these people are just sitting there trying to kind of be with themselves and it's a hard thing to do and I, I had a lot of friends with a lot of you know suffering emotional mental suffering and suffering from our circumstances and all those things but no right here is where it stops you're going to sit down and sit inside who you are inside your circumstance and see if you can be with it in a way and, and you you learn that it's not about gritting and bearing it. It's not some. Uh, it's not about. Uh, it's not a, a strength move of trying to push through. It's much more a more vulnerability move of opening to it. And and just seeing that uh, that changed me. You know, not so much things that were changing in me. Just seeing the commitment of other people, seeing how you know brave they were, and uh, and then having some good teachers. And so I just went crazy from then on in. I went nuts in. in you know, going to every possible meditation retreat I could, studying with every teacher, meditating, you know, the kind of thing you do when you're a zealot young dude, especially, or young person, decide you're going to figure it out. I thought I was going to get enlightened. I wanted to, you know, get all that stuff figured out. 
so I just uh, that kind of began that part of my journey, and I mean, I can go on from here. Yeah, please. Any, do. <laughs> okay, so uh, um, well, and then so what happened? Well, you know, this is interesting because you kind of have the people talk about meditation. You kind of get the Disney Channel version of meditation all the time. Like, oh yeah, you got to meditate, and it's help. It helps with stress, and it'll all work out once you start practice. Um, but my trajectory was more complicated it didn't really look quite like that although probably the overall art has been in that direction um yeah i so i first began i i uh i hadn't couldn't quite find the right teacher for me i I found that there was a lot of um you know i like to know how things work and i like to understand the mechanics of how the practice is actually helping me what it looks like from the inside, what it feels like, what are the qualities being developed, what are the, the dynamics. Um, and I didn't find that through the prism of strict Buddhist philosophy that it was really giving me that tangible piece that I needed. It was giving me plenty of inspiration, plenty of brilliant practice suggestions, plenty of brilliant stuff all around. I mean, it's a peerless philosophical system. It's wonderful. But I just was having trouble mapping it onto my moment-to-moment experience. So I found, I eventually found a teacher named Shinzen Young, uh, who is a superb meditation teacher, a real genius, very much a kind of engineer brain uh, who has a particular way of talking about mindfulness and meditation and, and the skills, the muscle groups that you're building. That was really what I was looking for. Now, of course, I can look back at other teachers and see that there, many of them are saying similar things, but he—it was just you know—he had a way of talking about it that kind of hit me at that right time. So I went really deep with him, um, you know, going to lots of retreats and spending hundreds of hours really interviewing him. Because at that time, I thought I'd do a second, another book about the deep end of practice, like what is the nature of how what awakening is and the transformation that happens, and how do you tease that out from all the kind of promotional material that was out there. Um, and uh, but but meanwhile, like in my practice, it was going through these phases. So the initial phase was it was really hard. Uh, couldn't really meditate. My mind was all over the place. But once I got, you know, eventually it clicked. It didn't take that long, actually. And that, before long, I was starting to get very, very concentrated. And I was getting into these deep states of sort of absorption and openness. And I was starting to have all the classic, some of the classic effects that you hear about, you know, like these uh, periods of where well, my entire inner talk would just fall away, like just this utter emptiness and silence and in my inner experience or uh, experiences of just merging with the world around me or uh, of kind of disappearing, it felt like, or uh, seeing the impermanence of things, seeing how we really seeing how we build our these models of the world from moment to moment, how everything we're inside is just this experiential bubble that's created by the mind. It doesn't mean it doesn't correspond to a real reality out there, but all we know is our own balloon. You know, it's just how that's basic perceptual psychology. And it's one thing to hear about it, but when you actually notice that happening in real time, you you don't ever forget it. It changes from then on in. You kind of have a little bit of skepticism in a way about, about the dream that you're in. You kind of say, oh yeah, it's this, you don't hold it quite as, 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 as tightly. Uh, So, you know, and that back then, of course I was, then I also got very, it was really working for me. I got very uh, uh, inspired and passionate about meditation. I started a meditation group in Toronto called the Consciousness Explorers Club. It was, uh, you know, it was popular and I was, I felt like I could speak absolutely without any ambiguity or any uh, 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 reservations about how fantastic meditation was. Um, And that's kind of, again, a stage that people go through, the stage of like 
being really the, the convert, you know, all of a sudden you're really a salesperson for a technique without ever having set out to, it kind of starts to go that way. Um, and from the beginning, we had a, the Conscious Explorers Club had a very pluralistic approach. So we were interested in many different techniques and not just meditation, but other spiritual techniques, psychotherapeutic techniques, humanist techniques. Um, but then I entered a difficult phase of practice where all of a sudden, it was really hard again, and I found my concentration sucked, and I found that all this really, really challenging emotional material from being a kid was starting to bubble up, sort of like you exfoliate you know, through the layers, and, uh, and you end up inside this old air pocket of uh, grief and you know, loss from from things that have happened before, and also all this stuff around your, how your challenges as a kid, you know, for me, I had a challenging childhood, so all that stuff was coming up and sitting and was really uncomfortable. And the usual advice of just, oh, you got to open to it and sit through it, sometimes that helped. Other times, that was actually the wrong advice. You know, I had to, like, go and hit a punching bag. I had to go do more physical practices. Uh, and no one was telling me this. I had just people – I just meditate more. But that wasn't the advice that I actually needed. Um, so, you know, I slowly kind of figured this out on my own, uh, and this, you know, and with friends, and this is what's so great about having a community is you just, I, you know, at the, at the conscious explorers club, we say the community is the teacher and it really means, you know, that our capacity to be honest about what we're struggling with is the, really the, the main thing we have to share. And, it, and we can share that no matter who we are, no matter how much experience we have, and since my experience is going to be a little bit different from yours, getting that pooled wisdom of a larger community or group is essential. I mean, I imagine it's a similar philosophy for your podcast because, mm -hmm. in a sense, you're pooling the wisdom of all your of your listeners who uh, have questions or who email you, and then also all your, all the guests you have on. There's no one right answer. Um, so that's a lot of stuff. Boy, I haven't feel like I've talked that long in a while. Uh, I can keep going if that's what you want me to do or if you yeah, want to I mean, ask a question about something. Point, or? How did you get to the point where you meet Dan? I do have tons of questions, but I want to kind of finish with how, how you met Dan and then we can get into my questions. Sure. Um, so, uh, okay, well, I guess it was 2012 and I wrote a piece for the New York Times called The Anxiety of the Long Distance Meditator. And it was about uh, some of the challenges that meditators – and that was around the time I was having a – I started going through a harder experience in my practice. And it was just about uh, this attempt on my part, uh, I think the attempt that a lot of young people have of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get this figured out. I'm going to get enlightenment. You know, I'm going to get enlightened. And it came from a place of real suffering. Like I was desperate to figure out how to address my situation because I was in a lot of pain then. Um, and so I wrote a piece about this. Uh, and it was sort of a playful piece, you know. And I guess Dan read it and liked it and started emailing me. And this is before he wrote his big book. So we became friends. Just we'd email back and forth, talk, nerd out about uh, deep end stuff. And then his book came out and he was like a mega bestseller. And uh, that was cool. And then he asked me, he started this app, 10% Happier, which is a great app. And I do a lot of stuff on there now. Asked me to come on board and just do some meditations for him. Did that. And it turned out to be popular, like my particular approach. He, they liked it. Uh, so, And since he knew I was a writer, when it came time for him to write a sequel to 10% Happier, they wanted to write a how-to book. 
he initially actually wanted to get Joseph Goldstein, who's a way better meditation teacher than me. <laughs> he's way more experienced. Um, I mean, just in terms of experience, you know, he's really an, an awesome dude. Uh, but he was kind of, you know, what's interesting about as you get older as a meditator, you get really smart, but not smart necessarily intellectually smart, although that can happen too. You get smart about your energy. You just start to realize how to be more efficient and how you're using your energy. And he was like, you know what? This trip across America, because uh, that, that's what the, the book is. It's a road trip across the states, you know, meeting different characters and populations and trying to help them with their practice. Joseph was like, that seems like a lot of work. And he had a lot of other responsibilities. And so he uh, opted out. And Dan was like, okay, I'll ask Jeff. So he asked me. And I was like, sure, that sounds awesome. And that's how it happened. And so that was a year ago. Did the road trip book was a real fast turnaround, and there were some bumps on that road too, which uh, which I talk about in another podcast and Dan's podcast. And now here we are. So if you like the unmistakable creative, there's another podcast that I think you'll really like. So how does an opera singer learn a new role? How does an actress find the perfect accent for her character? What does the director of a TV drama actually do all day? Those are the questions that Ruman Alam, Isaac Butler, and June Thomas put to creative people every week on Working. Learn how writers outline novels, how composers get jobs and get paid, and how YouTube creators learn to look into the camera lens. Listen to Working from Slate every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now, with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow. Um, so many questions come from this. You know, it's funny that you brought up the ADD thing and, and you know, you've alluded to it. And I remember that very distinctly throughout the book. So I am curious. I mean, as somebody who has um, built a career that cr- clearly requires a level of sustained attention, I know this because I'm a writer myself. I mean, if you're writing pieces for The New York Times, you're writing a book. Um, how do you do that? How do you manage that when you have the attention issues that you do? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Um uh, not easily is what I would say. Uh, I mean, there's a few different ways to answer it. One, the big, big picture way is what I've found, what other people have found is there's our natural proclivity with attention. And then there are these sort of cycles underneath it where there are periods in your life when you find you may just be naturally a little bit more concentrated, ones are a little bit less. So uh, when, when I just naturally cycle into those more concentrated periods, I, I just get more work done. Uh, so there is sort of that rhythm that's kind of there. And I I don't really understand that rhythm. It's it seems to be it's dependent sometimes on what's happening externally, but it also is just its own thing. Um, and then there's the meditation. So within meditation, there are periods when your practice is uh, maybe that's the same correspondence when your practice is going well, when it's not going as well. When my so in periods when my practice is going well and I'm in, in terms of the concentration piece, that's when it's much easier for me to uh, do all that stuff. Uh, easier to write, easier to meditate. Uh, when the practice is not going as well, it tends to be the concentration piece that flags for me. But there are many, many, many skills that are being developed in meditation. Concentration is probably the main and most important one. But I would say as important is the skill of equanimity. And I can unpack that because it's yeah, please pretty do. much a peerless life skill. Uh, then and sensory clarity, friendliness. So uh, the equanimity is um, – this is the one that was a big surprise for me when I started practicing. I, I had no concept for it really. Um, the way my teacher Shinzen talks about it is lack of – uh, friction, lack of pushing and pulling on experience. So you could say it's openness, but it's a very particular uh, way in which you find this openness by not, you really, you learn how n- most of the time we're sort of very subtly braced against certain experiences. So you might, when you see something you don't like, you're a little bit kind of want to avoid it, you know, or your certain feelings you don't want to feel, you're kind of subtly fighting with it or in all these ways we create this very subtle tension in our experience so equanimity is starting to notice that and just 
taking a deep breath, you know, softening through the front of the belly. I mean, if you're anyone's listening, you can do it now. You just sort of soften through the front, for the front, soften the face. And you just imagine the experience, in this case, the sound wave of my voice, just floating right through you. And there's no rigidity or no bracing. Um, and there's a, it has a particular feeling. There's a kind of open feeling. And this turns out to be this huge contemplative mystery because what I've just described right there is on a continuum and you can get more and more and more open and as you get more and more open the experiences that you have it's like the neurons fire but they don't wire like you have these experiences but you don't lay down any as much conditioning and eventually it seems like almost no conditioning so in other words say someone says something that pisses you off normally you're reactive and you might respond Instead, you just totally open to that feeling of wanting to lash out, and you can literally metabolize that sensation, that pattern, so you get so it's less likely to be repeated later. So it's the opposite of 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 conditioning in the sense of reinforcing a new pattern. The more open you are, the more patterns kind of get the wind comes out of their sails, and you can actually start to reverse certain kinds of patterns. So it's absolutely essential to understand that in terms of behavior change, how equanimity works, and I actually think that. A lot of people understand this in their own words in different ways. Like there's people talk about it within psychotherapy as catharsis or it's talked about in different modes. And I think a lot of people probably have an intuitive sense of how it works. But, but you know, for me, that was something that was always uh, – that I actually was pretty good at. So even in times when I'd be really ADD, I could notice uh, – you know, I might not be great at concentrating, but I was still good at existing. <laughs> you know, it's like I could just sit and open to my experience and see where I was. And I had the clarity to notice where I would be going into these spirals of judgment about it and, and to not feed that mm-hmm. and just to be equanimous with those reactions. And then they would just, you know, fa- they would phase out. So in other words, I would go into periods of my life where I'd be more productive from the kind of typical ways in which we imagine you need to be productive in the West, you know, getting shit done and emails and writing. Then I go through phases where I was more blown out, but more equanimous, and it wasn't as productive a work time, but it was great for in-the-moment teachy stuff. It was good for you know, just being a human being and hanging out with my friends and doing whatever I needed to do. Hmm. So you know, one of the things that I, I was curious about you know, that after reading this book, I'm curious, what misperceptions do people have about a meditation practice? And you know, it's funny because you referenced the practice going well and the practice not going well. And, it, you know, it, I think one of the things that challenges people with that idea is, OK, am I doing it right or am I doing it wrong? Which I think we can all agree that there is no right or wrong way to do this. Yeah, well, I mean, yes and no. There's uh, this is the thing. Uh, there are windows and the, and there are walls in a practice. So there are opportunities that emerge in a practice and, and then there's and there's the right there's a good move a right move you can do that will deepen that opportunity similarly there are things that can there are walls you can hit in a practice and there are ways in which you can there are things you can do that are more helpful and less helpful when you hit those walls so even so it's sort of like it, basically the best answer is meditation is like life you don't get a manual for how to live your life you know there are certain rules you can think about certain guidelines are going to be helpful but at different times different things are going to you're going to are going to need to apply you're going to have to switch up your strategy 
So generally in a practice, you can learn the basics of how to do a technique. You can be intelligent about how you're practicing. You can learn a little bit about like uh, or either by working with a teacher or figuring it out on your own or in community about how to take advantage of certain openings. But even having said that, there will be times when you may need to switch up your practice and you may need to check in with a different teacher or with a different uh, try a new strategy. And unfortunately, there is no manual that can tell you exactly when to do those things. Um, uh, but having said that, it's also enormously simple just to start. You know, it's like in some ways it's very, very simple. You start, you, you know, pay attention to your breath or whatever you want to do. You just let that be what it is. And there's some practices that are just about sitting and not doing anything. And that can be a fine practice. But knowing a bit of theory around it can help you when you suddenly have an, an opportunity that arises in the practice to go, say, deeper, which can happen, then you can sort of take advantage of that. So um, I, I'm not sure if that was that clear, my, my response to you, but um, I mean, I'm still – the most honest response is after uh, 15 years of serious sitting and practicing, I am still trying to figure it out. You know, I'm still learning all the time. I'm still changing my practice. You know, I can't imagine – not having my practice. I love at the end of the day being able to sit and just sit inside my experience and the feelings of intimacy and connection and openness and the sanity that emerges is it's so much more noticeable than it was when I when I began. So there's it's very obvious for me that it's that it had a huge benefit, but it has been a continuous learning experience and um you know the second you think you've got it figured out is when it turns around and bites you in the ass. So you really being humble is is kind of like the name of the game as well <laughs> in, in the practice. So you know, it, it's interesting you brought up sanity of all things, and and to me, you know, I think the the big draw for meditation was that okay, this could you know alleviate symptoms of depression or, or anxiety or, or you know tendencies to ruminate. And there's also a strange irony in that, right? Because what you're paying attention to are the very things that you have a tendency to ruminate on. Um, so I, I'm curious. Uh, how you get to the point where you're actually benefiting from it. Cause I think if there's one thing that made the entire book worth reading for me, it was this one um, equation that I remember seeing in the book and I wrote it down. I even Instagrammed it. It was that suffering is equal to pain times resistance. And, and I thought so much about that and I said, okay, yeah, there are a lot of painful things that, you know, we experience as human beings, whether it's, it's something, you know, job related, career related, relationship related, and, you know, our, our natural tendency is to resist that pain, I, I think, for, for so many people. So I'm curious um, how you, you, you know, develop a practice that helps you alleviate suffering when the reality is that you're actually giving attention to these very things that are causing you to suffer, if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> it totally does. No, you nailed it. You nailed one of the paradoxes of practice, or at least the part that's least intuitive, which is this uh, notion of um, kind of moving into our discomfort. So, I mean, there's a couple things to say. First of all, as a meditative strategy, that's one strategy. It's it's no better or worse than other strategies. Like a strategy of focusing away, you know, if you had physical pain or emotional pain, focusing instead on the breath, that's a legitimate strategy. Or a strategy of deliberately generating kind of friendliness and loving kindness to your compassion to yourself, that's a legitimate strategy. But the the essence of a of a mindfulness strategy is to uh, is to work with what's actually happening in your experience. To not trying to to just say, okay, here is this is where I am. This is the human being I am, and these are the things I'm feeling, including this discomfort, this this, uh, and this is where I'm going to begin. 
And the the key skill is exactly the skill I was trying to describe earlier, uh, equanimity. Uh, so that equation, suffering equals pain times resistance, is one that my teacher Shinzen uses. It's one that it's a really brilliant reformulation of pretty much what's understood in Buddhism uh, around the, the nature of equanimity. And what you hear many teachers say is that you can't avoid pain in this life. You know, you're going to have physical pain, you're going to have emotional pain and mental anguish. Um, but what you can do um, is uh, avoid making it worse. And the way we make it worse is by resisting it, fighting it, blocking it, uh, grabbing onto it, all the different ways in which we basically amplify the signal of that pain. And that amplified signal becomes the suffering. So, and just to give you a vivid example, so I'll, I'll tell you how to work with it because that was your question. And I'll just give you the example of let's say you're having, let's say you have physical pain in your knee, just to make it very simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're sitting, and this happens to a lot of practitioners, you've got physical pain in your knee. You're like trying to pay attention to your breath, but your knee just keeps on bugging the hell out of you, and it just seems to be getting worse. And so, one strategy is to focus away, and if you can get, if your concentration is strong enough, you can get absorbed in another sensation, and it kind of just disappears that pain. Um, but the the going into it strategy is super interesting. Uh, what you do is you first locate the sense of it, so the feeling of right around the knee, and as you and you kind of go right into it, you kind of notice where's the center of the pain, where are the edges, and, and as soon as you start doing that, where are the edges, you often start seeing that the the pain itself is fairly manageable and local it's just around the knee but all around the knee there's these waves of little like of like of resistance of suffering of like of like ways in which your body is tensing a little bit or ways in which in your head your inner talk is like oh god i can't handle this knee pain i need to get away from this knee pain i need to get out of here or there's an image of your knee swollen and full of gangrene or who knows what it is you know you've got all but all those things amplify the original signal and that's what's really that's the challenge. That's the suffering that you're inside. So mindfulness just says, okay, divide and conquer. Just pay attention to this one, this one pain signal in my knee. That's it. And as you do that, all that other stuff starts to calm down. And then you just notice it's just sensations. And you just feel it as sensations. And eventually, if you can be open enough, you can get these things called this thing called purification or basically this moment where it kind of breaks up. You know, call it metabolizing it. You're so open to the feeling of pain in your knee that it ceases to become a problem, and then it just sort of, it just kind of breaks up. Just you just realize it's just energy. It's just you know, it's just sensations. So that and that same skill can be used for emotional pain. You know, for uh, so if you have a heartache, you know, at first you might not want to go into it, and there is a smart move here around pacing yourself. And we talk about how to do that in the book around this sort of rain. Uh, formula that a lot of other teachers use. Um, so you kind of pace yourself a bit, but when you feel ready to open to it, you just let yourself kind of go in there and try to f- explore the sensation around where you feel that heartache, say. Um, and often it increases. Uh, so that just what you said, as soon as you start to open to something or notice it, it often gets worse. But then there can be a, f- a period where if you're really opening and not fighting with it, it kind of passes through you. And you kind of reset you come back into the moment you know you come back into where you are and now that 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 thing that was there has moved a little bit it's more fluid it's more and this really is the big picture of a practice dude it's like that's what you're kind of moving towards you're moving towards a place of more 
fluidity where you're able to be more responsive to what's actually happening in the moment and you're not holding on and gripping on to all this stuff, these old stories, these old feelings, that heartache you and let it express itself. And when you let it express itself, it does. And then you can move through into the next iteration of you. If you, but what we do instead is we're kind of holding on to all these little parts of us, little ruminative patterns we're holding on to, old grudges, feelings, you know, there's all this gripping and coagulation in the sensory system. And so meditation teaches you how to make things more free flowing. And as you do that, guess what? You're more able to just show up in the moment for other people. You're more present with other people. You can see the character in their faces. You're not just looking at your own projections everywhere. You're, and there's a friendliness that can also kind of come up through that. And so really, it fucking rocks. I mean, the thing is, you're, you're crazy not to at least try meditating because it mm-hmm. can really make a huge difference. I mean, if you've been doing it for a while, you, I'd love to hear your stories. Yeah. No, I mean, I I can tell you that it, it has made a huge difference in my ability to focus. Um, I'll tell you what, there are a couple of things that sold me on the habit. One was I consistently noticed this pattern that nearly every billionaire who a book had been written about had referenced a meditation habit. I was like, that's a pretty convincing case. Um, (laughs) You know, I was like, okay, that's, that's a convincing enough case. But then I had a mentor who told me, you know, he said, human beings are the only species with the capacity to pause between stimulus and response. And I said, well, what's the key to developing that capacity? He said, meditation. That's it, dude. Yeah, that's uh, that's really it. So it's learning to live in that space more and more. And what people don't understand is people think, oh, somehow that seems counter to life or something. Like I want to be in the the vehicle of life. I want to be responding, and you can do all that. Uh, it doesn't. What it does is it actually kind of. It's more like it just takes out all the friction. So you feel those things more fully. You feel like you're more in your life, but you're also more in that that bubble of sanity where you feel like you can respond. It's kind of like that. It's a it's cheesy, but it's like the Matrix or something where there's that dude moving in slow motion and dodging the bullets. Like you just have more space to be able to respond to things, um, especially when you stop caring, like about you know you know how you're looking or how what you need to say in this moment or, or stop you you stop being in your mind full of strategies about things and you just pop land right here where you are and you just start to trust nature to say the right thing through you so you so when you meet people who are really on the deep end of this path like you know not me like my teachers you know or Joseph Goldstein or Shinzen Young or Sharon Salzberg or whoever they have this there is a real uh there can be that freedom that fluidity there's a certain quality that they have of like uh of suppleness of how they're moving through things uh and it's you know that's where the the practice leads it's interesting wow um, what are the, the sort of unexpected benefits that you've seen uh, in the lives of people, I mean, that you've profiled in this book as well as in your own lives as a result of this? Uh, well, what I was interested in with the book with all the people we met there was just how – I mean, these are just really practical people like you know, cops and military people and uh, caregivers and uh, every kind of – you know, we met so many different groups of people and they were just really interested in like, how can I just practically apply these skills now in my job uh, to make it to, to be a better police officer, to be more to be a better caregiver, to be a better politician. Uh, and it was working for a lot of them. That was what was so interesting. And, and in this very down to earth way, you know, it was just giving them uh, more time to pause, like you said, more of that feeling like being in that 
uh, in the space between stimulus and response. It was a, a way for them to regulate their emotions. Sometimes I'd heard that from people, or to uh, to to honor the, but including honoring the hard emotions. You know, mm. so there's all these kind of more. Um, uh, just a, it's like it just helps you become who you are more fully. It helps you be more of a of, of a human being. And I don't know if it makes if it if you know I think it kind of the kind of practice is going to depend a little bit on the person and people are going to get different benefits. But that does seem to be sort of an overall benefit there. Um, and then there's people that I know who are more who've done it more long term, uh, and I really see the differences there uh, where people are just much less reactive, you know, much less prone to anger or triggered like that. But the really beautiful part is this sense of like, uh, you know, of intimacy that kind of emerges. And I kind of, you know, I experienced this too at times where you're just, you know, connected to the privilege of being here and the mystery of it, the feeling of uh, waking up and looking out of the world and not taking it for granted and being, you know, able to, uh, to see the people that you're passing on the street, you know, able to be curious about stuff outside of you. That's the biggest, for me, the biggest shift, you know, mm-hmm. I was just such a narcissist and just so agonized with my own shit and yeah, I'm still working on it, but I, you get more and more, you get a break from you. It's like, and it's so nice to have a break from you. You know, yeah, you, you and you get a break from you by being compassionate about how you are. But that inner world is less filled up with your own schemes and strategizing, and it's just there for. And so that then that you're open to the serendipities, to to surprise, to and to the mystery, which really is a mystery because it just feels more and more profound and weird that you're here at all and you're tuned into that frequency but not in a way that paralyzes you more in a way that uh helps you appreciate uh things and oh yeah another thing i should say is the energy efficiency like i think i said at the beginning you're like you get more tuned into your you know metabolism and it's like i don't need to energy i don't need to expend all this energy in the same way or all this stuff i because you think oh you're always thinking, oh, I got to do this, I got to do this. You have all these ideas of what you got to do or who you got to be, and you're just spinning the wheels and pouring out your energy. It's like this friend of mine, Scott, who used to like pour out all this awesome, crazy energy at three in the morning and just do the most beautiful riffs, beautific firebombs of like creativity into the air, but nobody was around to see it. You know, he would just blow it out. And it's sort of like, and that was beautiful for its own sake, but it's like you get, you start to notice where you're expending that energy and decide, is this the best use of my time right now? Or maybe what I need to be doing is just chilling in nature. And and so there's just this calibration that happens. I guess it's wisdom, you know, because old people got it, at least, the, at least the ones who are learning stuff. So that okay, so you, I, sometimes you could, you could think of it as or how I think of it as is, is meditation accelerates the aging gracefully gradient. It like makes you an, uh, like a wise old geezer <laughs> in the prime of your life or more like that. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really eye-opening and uh, insightful. Uh, so I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, well, I think everyone's already unmistakable. You know, um, I think it's whether they notice it or not and uh, whether they whether they can actually clear out some of that space to be able to see that not just you but every single person you meet is this 
phenomenal, you know, if this this blooming thing, and the the standards by which you uh, judge something to be quote important quote creative, you know, valuable, all those ideas that we inherit from our culture turn out to be bullshit basically, because the only standard is the standard of existence, and on that standard we're all perfect. You know, and when you see the world more and more from that, you, you get less interested in hanging out with quote interesting people, and more interested in just being there for whatever is coming up. And I, so I think that it's for me, it's a it's a spiritual practice, whatever you want to call it. It's a practice that's about connecting to your own being. That is the thing that will most potentiate your own unmistakableness and your own ability to recognize that in everybody else. Um, so I guess those are some words about that. Hmm. Awesome. Um, where can people learn more about you, your work in the book? Uh, well, the book is 10% happier. It's called, no, no, it's called the 10% <laughs> happier how to book. It's called meditation for fidgety skeptics. And that's, you'll see it ad nauseum across every airport and <laughs> bookstore uh, that you have the good fortune of coming across and you can find it on all the usual retail bestseller things. Um, I should mention the app, 10% Happier. Uh, really, there's lots of cool meditation apps. I find this one great. You know, I'm biased because it's the only one I've really checked out, but it's got video, which I like. So you can kind of, and I use it for, as well for guided meditations with other teachers. I'm in there. Other people are in there. Has Dan's sense of humor. I have a website, uh, jeffwarren.org. Uh, you can check out. I got writing there about random deep end of the tool stuff my friend keeps telling me i need to update it with more accessible articles but i just write whatever's coming up um and then i have the consciousness explorers club which is a kind of meditation adventure group in toronto but we're really building towards becoming a global resource we're a non-profit we're trying to help people start up communities of practice anywhere in the world and we're going to have scripts and meditations and all that stuff on the website which people can download so those are some things you can uh, check that out and uh yeah and try meditating why not you can awesome. uh, you might be surprised awesome and for everybody listening we will wrap the show with that thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast while you were listening were there any moments you found fascinating inspiring instructive maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.